0: Friends, welcome to the Brave Marriage Podcast. I'm Kenzie Dzinski, a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified professional coach, and this is a podcast for couples who want to grow as individuals, do marriage with intention, and live mutually empowered, purposeful lives. I hope it's been a good week for you and that each one of you is doing well as we move closer to the holiday season. On today's episode, we're continuing with our conversation around boundaries. But this week and next, I want to talk more about boundaries within your relationship. Last week, we talked about setting boundaries around your relationship, and I think that's what most people commonly think about when there's talk about boundaries. But in all honesty, our marriages and relationships would be so much healthier if more of us could better grasp the concept of boundaries within marriage. I think especially for us in the church, the tendency can be to only grasp the concept of leaving, cleaving, and becoming one flesh, which is crucial in marriage, don't get me wrong. But without a counterbalance teaching on retaining our God-given selves transformed through Christ, too many couples mistake unity and becoming one for enmeshment or codependence, rather than recognizing that unity actually requires that we remain two different people. Think about singing in unison. When one person sings, we call it a solo. That person isn't singing in unison because there's only one voice. Unison, on the other hand, requires two or more voices singing on the same pitch, volume, and rhythm. Likewise, unity can't be achieved in marriage unless both parties commit to showing up and singing their part, if you will, to enrich the collective whole. And another unhealthy tendency we have as humans is to poorly steward our God-given gifts and strengths, using them not to empower our spouse or the collective whole of our marriage, but instead to shine our own light at the expense of our partner. I like to call this spousal eclipse. So let's continue with the singing analogy for a second. Just as unison sounds beautiful when all members contribute their voice to the collective whole, harmony is equally beautiful. And that requires all of the members to still show up, still participate, and take responsibility for their part while staying in their lane and using their voice to complement the other parts, not to eclipse or dominate them. I remember when I was in chamber choir in college, we were working on a few songs in preparation for our tour in England, which, if you've ever heard a group sing in those cathedrals, it's beautiful and sacred when it's done well. But there was a soprano who had a beautiful voice but when singing with the choir, drowned out not only the soprano section, but stuck out like a sore thumb among the group. And our choir director said something to the effect of, we know you have a beautiful voice, but this is not a solo, and what may sound good when singing a solo does not sound good in here. It takes away from what we're trying to accomplish. In the same way, when one spouse eclipses the other, it takes away from what their marriage is intended to accomplish. Because one spouse, who maybe tries to sing his or her part at first, because that spouse is under the impression that their marriage is a duet, ends up feeling like a background singer instead, while the other spouse props him or herself up at the other's expense. And when that happens, their marriage doesn't resonate with the world as one that's beautiful and sacred, but as one where the quality of their song, which is supposed to be heard for both its unison and its harmony, is diminished. Alternatively, when couples both show up, when they sing together, that's when their song resonates with the world. Because only in that state do they reflect God's design in that each person in a marriage is necessary, yet together as they submit to God, those two people can produce a beautiful sound or a quality of life and relationship and reflect God's love to the world in ways that neither could on his or her own. So again, To fuse into each other is unhealthy, but so is eclipsing your spouse. And boundaries, my friends, are needed for both to keep your marriage healthy and thriving and resonating beautifully in the world. So today and next week, I want to introduce you to six different boundaries to set within your marriage so that your marriage may thrive and avoid fusion on the one hand and spousal eclipse on the other. And I'll share these in order of consequence from least to greatest. Starting with time, space, decision making, identity, disrespect, and bad behavior. We'll cover the first half in today's episode and the last half in next week's episode. The first is time. Creating boundaries around how much time to spend together, alone, and with others is an important part of acting both in unison and in harmony. It's an element of relationships that can be overlooked but it's one of the most common, unexpected challenges for newlyweds as they learn to merge their lives together. Couples have different habits, personalities, and preferences when it comes to how they spend their time. And before living together, this isn't as recognized between couples because all they know is when they're spending their time together, but how they spend their time away from each other isn't necessarily experienced the same way as when they're sitting at home by themselves once married. So it's especially important to have an open, honest conversation about what each person in the relationship needs regarding time. For example, individuals who are introverted will need to set a boundary close to social events so that they have time to recharge by themselves in order to be happy, healthy, and present with those around them. So maybe the boundary for an introvert is agreeing upon some alone time during the day to recharge or scheduling time away when they know there's a lot of upcoming social energy to expend. Now, quickly, I will say that according to John Gottman, the healthiest couples are spending five hours of intentional time together each week compared to unhappy couples who have five less hours per week. So if you're super introverted, remember that you're setting these boundaries for the good of your relationship, not just for the good of yourself. On the other hand, Individuals who are extroverted will need to set a boundary around alone time for their mental health and block out a time to spend with friends or family to proactively plan and eliminate some of that alone time. And of course, these boundaries will need to be renegotiated in different seasons of marriage. Time together as newlyweds will look different as kids enter the picture, and again will look different as adult children launch. I have an older friend who shared once that when her kids were little, she and her husband worked it out so that he kept the kids occupied on Sunday mornings before church so that she could have 30 minutes of alone time in the shower and getting ready, which is what she needed to feel good and healthy in all of her relationships with her husband and with her family. And that was a realistic boundary to set during that time with having young kids. So this is an example of a time where it's appropriate for couples to work in harmony. Right, where each of them are taking different roles, but working together to set some boundaries for the good of their relationship. So, think about how you prefer to spend your time. Are you and your spouse making it a priority to get the time and space you need to recharge and refuel so that you can be your best for those around you? If not, how can you work together to create some boundaries around your time that lead to mutual happiness in your marriage? The second boundary to set within your relationship is around space. And what I'm talking about here is relational and emotional space, the space that's needed especially after conflict to feel safe and secure relationally. Most couples leave this dynamic in their relationship unspoken, but it is so helpful when spouses are aware of each other's boundaries in what's needed after a day of work or of being home with the kids all day or after conflict Now, I'll have some questions for you again when we get through talking about the second boundary, but I do wanna spend a little more time talking about space during conflict. There are two types of spouses in conflict. There are pursuers and distancers. Pursuers don't do as well with relational and emotional space. Because of their personality and especially their background, space to them equals distance and disconnection at best, or hurt and pain at worst. And when pursuers haven't yet learned this about themselves, they can think that their pursuit is about trying to achieve healthy connection. But their constant pursuit is actually less about health and more about insecure attachment. And as a result, their pursuit unintentionally crosses their partner's boundaries, all in an attempt for the pursuer to feel physiologically safe. Because space feels uncomfortable and scary to pursuers physiologically, while physical closeness and contact feel safe and secure physiologically. Distancers, on the other hand, don't do as well with closeness and connection. Again, because of their personality, and especially because of their past, closeness and connection equals unknown territory at best, or hurt and pain at worst. And when distancers haven't yet learned this about themselves, they can tend to think that their reaction in conflict is more rational and stoic than the pursuit of their partner. But actually, their reaction is less about health and more about feeling safe physiologically. So both partners are after the same thing, they just express that differently. One distances to tolerate uncomfortable emotion, while the other pursues to tolerate uncomfortable emotion. But what happens is they end up triggering each other. Distance triggers a pursuer, but distancers nonetheless have trouble moving toward their spouse because to do so destabilizes the inner mechanisms they've built to self-protect and to manage when their boundaries get crossed. So all of that to say, if you're in a marriage where you have a pursuer-distancer dynamic, it's really important for each of you to set some boundaries if you want to learn to do conflict more healthily. And the beauty of it is when you set these boundaries, you're better able to connect or better able to self-soothe and self-regulate by working together. And research shows that you can actually help each other co-regulate and rewire some of that initial reaction. But again, first you have to become aware of it and first you have to set some boundaries so that both of you are getting what you need. So pursuers, consider setting a boundary for yourself within your marriage that instead of asking or pressing your spouse more than once, you're going to make your case and then deep breathe or do a guided meditation or reach out to a counselor so that they can help you learn how to self-soothe and self-regulate the discomfort that arises in your own space. And paradoxically, when you learn to do this, you'll increase the likelihood that a distancer will move towards you if and when he or she is willing to learn and do so. For distancers, consider setting a boundary for yourself and your spouse that instead of withdrawing or shutting down without communicating anything to your partner, you're going to state that you need some space and time and that you'll let your partner know when you're ready to talk. Now, distancers, this should be within the same day, even within the same hour if possible. But it's important that distancers learn to self-soothe as well and to regulate the discomfort that arises in the relational space as you learn to tolerate degrees of intimacy and practice with your partner to realize that, in fact, you're both safe. Now, I've gone deep into a dynamic that could really stand the help of a trauma-informed therapist and or an emotionally-focused couples therapist. But otherwise, think about how much space you desire to have in the mornings, after work, after a full day with the kids, and in the midst of conflict. And then, communicate your boundaries so that you and your spouse are on the same page and can work together to implement and respect each other's boundaries so that your dynamic becomes a healthier one. And the third boundary to set within your marriage is around decision-making. While we know that healthy marriages are able to problem-solve and make decisions together, And while we teach in premarital how important it is to be on the same page and to be a united front, we don't often widely talk about the relational dynamics that are built into the decision-making process. So I want you to think about this in your relationship. Who's more dominant? Who's more passive? Who's more persuasive? Who's more pleasing? Who's more rigid and stubborn? And who is more flexible and accommodating? Who makes the decisions about where you live, where you work, who stays at home, major life changes or transitions, money, opportunities, what you're going to do for dinner? Your answers to these questions will likely tell you how decisions are naturally made in your relationship. But it's so important to do your work around learning to assert yourself in your marriage while also making room for your partner's perspective and learning to give and make decisions together. Healthy relationships are made up of two whole persons who are able to bring their full selves to the table, where both people are heard and both perspectives are considered so that decisions are made in the best interest of the collective whole. So, to what degree do you listen to your spouse, consider your spouse, and make decisions that benefit both of you? And to what degree do you show up to bring something of value, and assert your wants and desires in the decision-making process. And once you have an answer, consider setting some boundaries within your marriage. If you're less dominant, your boundary might be that you show up with a thought-through answer to contribute to the conversation, or that you at least learn to make conscious decisions about small things that may seem inconsequential, but will help you practice setting a boundary within your marriage so that you as a person don't get overlooked but that you learn to assert yourself and learn that your perspective is valid. If you're more dominant, your boundary might be that you commit to leaving space on the table for your partner's perspective to empower him or her. Or your boundary might be that you don't make a decision until your spouse has contributed his or her side. All right, friends, I hope this has been a helpful start as you think about setting boundaries within different realms of your marriage. And by the way, some of the best books written on the topic are by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. They have a collection of boundaries books, but there's one that specifically addresses boundaries in marriage. So I'll link that in the show notes in case you want to explore this topic further. But your action step for today is to ask each other the questions that I've posed throughout the episode. Those will be available in the show notes. And remember, this is all in service of helping you develop a healthier relationship, a more differentiated unity, not just in appearance to the outside world, but in essence, behind closed doors. The prayer for our marriages this week comes from Jesus' prayer in John 17, 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. just as fast